Hey, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that helps you understand and translate Donald J. Trump, among other things. Joining me today is Heather MacDonald. She's the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. She's a contributing editor of City Journal and the author of The War on Cops. And a new book will be coming out called The Diversity Delusion. Look forward to that. We're going to talk about the rise in violence in Chicago a few weeks ago, the terrible murders there. Why is this continuing to happen? How can it be fixed? Why isn't more attention being paid to it? And that Supreme Court decision I've been telling you about, the Janus decision, which could have a major impact on unions, public sector unions, especially teachers unions uh, in the United States. Um, we'll discuss that further with an expert, Terry Pell. Um, he's the president at the Center for Individual Rights. He'll give us his thoughts on the implementation of this decision, how states are going to fight it, how unions are going to fight it, and uh, what it all comes to. Uh, first, I'd like to discuss a few things. Please pay close attention to what Heather MacDonald has to say. She is one of the most, I think she is the best informed person on police work in this country, violence in this country, causes of domestic violence in this country. She speaks with great passion and great authority and um, has plenty to say. And um, it's worth it's worth listening to. The tragedy of Chicago, the catastrophe that seems to be Chicago every weekend, requires our attention and uh, and focus, and uh, she gives it that. Uh, on a more prosaic level, but not less important, well, it may be less important, but not much in the long run, the education of our children, this Janus decision matters, uh, matters a good bit. Um, it could change the teaching profession. If people feel they're not, uh, don't have the union mindset because they don't have to join the union, um, it could change their way of thinking about their own job. And we don't get into that in this discussion with Terry. It's more nuts and bolts about what the decision's about, what it means, and its implications. But it's going to be a many-year struggle. And my hope is that it alters the teaching profession for the better in significant ways. So please listen in on that. A few other thoughts. Uh, I'll start with Omarosa. Omarosa. Uh, her book is out unhinged. Uh, apparently it's an unhinged book. It's a mess from the reviews I've read. And these, this even from liberals. One thinks of the Michael Wolf book. You remember that, uh, Claude? The, yes. The uh -huh. Fury and the whatever it was. Right. And uh, that was all the rage, all the sensation that's now disappeared. And her book, I presume, I think will disappear as well. The charges will remain. And I was on Fox last night talking about this. And I'd just like to say two things. First, there's this background noise that we keep hearing that the president at some point in his professional life used the N-word. Um, no one seems to be able to substantiate that. But um, this is what she keeps hinting at and uh, suggesting that it was heard or someone has a tape of it. Um, it hasn't been forthcoming. Uh, the media is making a lot of the fact that Sarah Sanders said, when asked, can you guarantee that he never said it? Well, she said, no, I can't guarantee that because I haven't been with him every minute of his life. That's, uh, that, that is what it is. Um, uh, the thing that strikes me is, first of all, I, 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 <laughs> this guy could not be a believing and practicing racist and survive in New York for as many years as he did with the friends, colleagues, business transactions, and so on. You just, you know, it's a multicultural society. It's a black, white, brown, tan society. And I just I just don't think that happens. Uh, might he have uttered this at some point in his life? Heck, I don't know. Um, would that condemn him to, to perdition for all time? I don't think so. Do you think so, Claude? Push back on this if I'm not being strong enough, if you think. I mean, I. It would, it, it would, it would be tough. Um, one of the things or the layers to it for me anyway, and I was talking to a couple of friends about this, uh, was if Omarosa knew this and felt this way about the president, why would she work for him? Yeah, why no would she kidding. work in the White House? Why yeah, would she no wait kidding. until now to, to, no to say kidding. this? Why wouldn't she do this during the campaign? 
um, uh, if she had this kind of evidence um, or had any kind of tapes of him saying anything uh, remotely close to that, why would she wait till now? Yeah. Why no, would she agree uh, to work for him? Well, why, you she's know, got yeah, exactly. one argument I've heard. She's got arguments all over the map. One of them is, well, I was hoping to reform him because I think it, at his core, he's a good man. I'm just, right. I'm just curious to ask you if you think, you know, if, if, a, if a white man any time in his life used the N-word, is that it? There are very few things in life, I think, that should be it for someone. Are we really at a time now? And, and, and you can replace the use of the N-word with anything else where nothing someone does is redeemable. You know, is right. I, I don't know. I no one can make a mistake anymore or make a bad. I don't even want to say mistake. No one can even make a bad decision or do something that was wrong prior in life without it dragging them down 10, 15, 20 years later. Uh, and again, we don't even have any evidence of this. So that's that's the imputation in an attempt to, you know, sort of nail him with it and then nail him. But the thing he did say was dog. And uh, I've, I've noticed that a lot of people are saying when, when he called her a dog that this is, you know, a, a quote, dog whistle, excuse the redundancy. Um, and that uh, this is uh, this is, you know, reserved for black people who he doesn't like. But I said last night on uh, on Fox He's called lots of people dogs. Other other very well-known African-Americans, Claude, like Mitt Romney, <laughs> Arianna Huffington, right. Glenn Beck. And he just, the, the word dog just, you know, comes quickly to his lips. Now, should he be saying it? No, I guess not. Probably not. Better choice of words. New York guy talks like that. If you punch him, he punches back. You hit him, he hits back. But this notion of trying to make dog the equivalent of N... Uh, is doesn't work. You agree with me there? I mean, that's just crazy. Right. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I do not agree with that. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Johnny is a joker. He's a bird. He's a bird dog, say the Everly Brothers, you know? Right. Hound dog. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. I mean, I, the last thing I want to say on this, and I mentioned this on Fox last night, too, um, I also said that, you know, people are saying, oh, my God, what a horrible, terrible thing um, for him to have said this or horrible to think that he might have said it it's just really kind of an odd you know, way to make a judgment about people he might have said that wouldn't that be horrible but when i was watching the jake tapper show it's called the lead i guess and he had a panel of three liberals or three trump haters including my friend bill crystal i'm sorry to say uh and they were absolutely gleeful there was so much jollity and levity and lightheartedness and laughing about Trump and just what a dog, excuse me, what a, what a you sure you want to say that? Yeah, what a dog he is, what a terrible person he is. They were pleased. My point here is in that, and then at Sarah Sanders press conference, 70% of the questions were about Omarosa. And, um, this just tells you that what the media and the liberals see is this chance to get Trump. It's all about getting Trump. It's not about great offense at the use of the term. It's, you know, that's, that's feigned. It's, a, maybe we can get Trump on this one. And we can nail him on this one, and that's what all the jollity in the in the first half hour of uh, Jake Tapper's show yesterday. Pull it up, folks, and you'll hear it. It's kind of interesting just how la- how much laughing goes on uh, at the discussion of what's supposed to be a you know a horrible thing to say, but it's because the Trump haters and the media see this as an opportunity to. You know, take him down. You know, seize on anything. Mental mental illness. Um, uh, it's going to blow up the world. Uh, affairs with uh, strippers. Whatever they can nail him on. That's what I think is going on.
I want to talk about Democrats because I found this in Chris Saliza, who is a liberal uh, CNN guy, and he also writes a daily thing called The Point, and he talks about the new Gallup poll. Hopefully people have heard about this. 57% of Democrats and Democrat-leaning voters have a positive view of socialism. 57% of Democrat voters and and, and people who lean Democrat have a positive view of socialism. 47% have a positive view of capitalism. 10-point advantage to socialism. Holy smokes. Republicans are less sanguine about socialism. 16% hold a positive view of it. 71% a favorable opinion of capitalism. Well, think Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez, think Bernie Sanders. It's where the energy is in the Democrat Party. Are they going towards socialism? Um, or is this just a small rump group? The energy seems to be to the left. It seems clear that's where the energy is. But, um, and I think this is where a lot of young people are. And I'll say more about the young people in a second. But so far in the primaries, these socialist candidates have not, for the most part, done well. She did well, Ocasio-Cortez, but others have been getting their head handed to them. But is this the way the Democrat Party's going? If 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 this is preponderantly young people, millennials, I come back to what I believe. You know me, folks. I say every anthropologist loves his own tribe, and I'm a tribalist on education. It's what's at the schools. We're teaching in the schools, and it's not just the colleges. It's not just campus crazy. It's what's going on in the schools. Uh, America is not taught as a place that uh, should be revered or, or exceptional or great, uh, but a uh, you know place where there's a, a, a oppression and and um, not the best of nations at all. You know, when the young are, young are taught to doubt, they do not know what they can safely believe. I think that was George Santayana. When the young are taught to doubt, um, they do not know what they can safely believe. So if you're if you're not taught about what America is and what your inheritance is as an America, you remain alien to yourself and alien to your country and probably suspicious of it and more susceptible to socialism. Claude, any comment? Yeah, well, it's definitely where the left is headed. I'm not sure if they're, they're there yet, but it's where all the momentum is. Uh, and it is where a lot of the young Democrats, I, I was speaking to a few liberal friends a couple months ago, and they were talking about, um, you know, just how outraged they are about everything Donald Trump. And so, but but their, their anger was more towards the Democrat Party for... Uh, not fully supporting Bernie Sanders. They believe 100% that if Bernie was the nominee uh, and it was not Hillary Clinton, uh, that he he would have wiped the floor with Trump. Uh, and, 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 but it's just interesting to, to 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 get that perspective where I'm thinking I don't think that I don't think there's anywhere in the world that would have happened. Um, uh, and, and they were upset about some of those, uh, the Donna Brazil thing, the whole leaked uh, debate questions to Hillary. I mean, it was obvious that the party wanted Hillary uh, to be the nominee. Uh, and they were very upset about it. I think it is where it's it's definitely where they headed. Socialism. Uh, super left. Well, we shall see. Uh, these primaries will tell us something. They will tell us a lot. Did you did you see where, uh, uh, gosh, Cortez was on one of the late night shows? It might have been. It wasn't Jimmy Fallon. It might have been Jimmy Kimmel. Um, and she was going on about, you know, free college, free health care, free, 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 free. And the host says, OK, I get that. But how in the world do we pay for all of this? Couldn't answer it. She, it was just a roundabout way of and a little more about, well, higher taxes on rich people. And then just a, a bunch of stuff that did not even address the question. Yeah. It's impossible to answer. Yeah. No, no, you can't. Yeah. But it's amazing. Sounds good. Though, it's right? plausible. I mean, here we are looking at the. 
situation in Venezuela, you know, socialism where people are fleeing by the thousands into Colombia, you know, uh, because of the collapse of the socialist state there. Socialism is as socialism does. Uh, capitalism needs work. You know, I'm, I'm two, two and a half tiers for capitalism as a system, economic system. I'm three tiers. Capitalism by itself needs some supplements of culture and religion and other things because there's a tendency in a capital, a pure capitalist system to think of everything as a commodity, everything is in the market. But um, it needs to be supplemented. I'm really quoting Pope here in a, in a encyclical. Um, by the way, how about that? How about that thing out of Pennsylvania with the thousand kids having been abused by these priests, right. these priests that right. being praised by these bishops? This is my church. My God, what a scandal, what an embarrassment. What a shame. Um, and, I mean, I, I think these these people say, well, statute of limitations is wrong. Well, they should be publicly shamed. Publicly shamed. You know, you give out the names and addresses of these uh, sex offenders. Give out these guys' name, name right. and addresses. Right. The church has to address this. And I, I heard yesterday in an interview, a guy said it's part of canon law that uh, when reports of such uh, kind of activity occur, they are to be kept confidential kept private, kept secret. No, they're not. Should be reported to the police and district attorney. Shame, shame. I, you know, I friends, I had a good friend, a cardinal who went down the tubes on this one. He wasn't molesting anybody, but he was basically forgiving or covering up um, the molestation by others. And uh, makes people wonder about the church, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Definitely it's, hurts your witness. Mm-hmm. Hurts your witness. Well put. Well said, Claude. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. All right, let's get started with our first guest, Heather MacDonald. Heather is the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a contributing editor of City Journal, and the author of The War on Cops. She has a new book coming out soon called The Diversity Delusion. Heather Mack. Hello, how are you? How are you? Good. Your article. Uh, I guess we're now, the next weekend has passed. We've got, what, 17 shot, two dead this past weekend? I think that's right. Yeah. No, it's just routine. I don't know if my totals are right, but I think it's something like 17 shot, two murdered. So your Mm -hmm. article last week, an explosion of drive-by shootings erupted on Chicago's south and west sides this weekend. At least 74 people were shot and 12 killed between 3 p.m. on Friday and 6 a.m. on Monday. In one seven-hour stretch starting around midnight on Saturday, at least 40 people were shot for fatally as gunmen targeted a block party. The aftermath of a funeral and a front porch, reports the Chicago Tribune. Are there police all over the street in these neighborhoods? Because it seems to be the same neighborhoods over and over again. If there are a lot of police on the street, how can that happen? And if there aren't, why aren't they there? Well, they may be there, but the police are uh, engaged in depolicing something that I've called the Ferguson effect. They are very reluctant to engage in the type of proactive policing that actually prevents crime. This is the type of discretionary policing uh, that involves getting out of your car, asking a question of somebody engaged in suspicious behavior, possibly frisking him if he's not uh, allaying your suspicions and and appears to have a gun. Chicago officers, uh, those types of street stops have dropped about 90% over the last couple of years because of a 
the Black Lives Matter narrative against the cops and because of an agreement that uh, the mayor and police chief foolishly signed with the ACLU, uh, putting the ACLU basically in, in oversight of, of that type of policing. And as a result, uh, the criminals have become emboldened in Chicago and people are not just carrying guns but using them. A few weeks ago, at the urging and and heartfelt requests of a neighborhood that was experiencing a very troublesome rise in drug dealing, uh, the cops did stop a man who appeared to be carrying a gun and uh, engaged with him. He took off, in fact, had a big pistol at his hip, pulled it out, was appearing to pull it out according to a video, um, and the cops shot him and killed him. This was a justified shooting. Uh, nevertheless, the protests against the shooting turned into violence with people throwing urine, uh, rocks, and bottles at the cops who would, were trying to protect people from a guy that was carrying a gun. After that, this was several weeks ago, the cops have once again decided it's not worth it. Uh, we will just ride around in our cars and wait for the next 9-11 call uh, when there's already been a shooting or already been a robbery. So the police are the second best solution to this type of mindless violent crime, which is the almost unique affliction of minority neighborhoods. The best solution is uh, the family. But until that gets knitted back together again so that boys grow up in a culture that expects them to take responsibility for their children and therefore to develop the bourgeois habits that would make them acceptable mates, long-term mates, uh, the police are absolutely essential to keeping order. And when they back off, you get this type of anarchy that is now afflicting the south and west sides of Chicago. I want to get into all that, the number one and number two uh, reasons, but I want to persist in my dumb question, simple-minded question anyway, if not a dumb question. These guys will be shooting each other while cops are driving around 30, 50 feet away? Well, there's not, you know, there is not that many cops. There's okay. been a reduction. Not a cop uh, in every corner, as we used to say, right? No, there's certainly not. Chicago, you know, it's a big city. The west, south, and west sides are, are large. Now, since the high degree of shootings last weekend, the police superintendent has said he's uh, taking away days off from all officers and uh, making them work really sort of round-the-clock shifts in order to try and flood the zone. You're absolutely right, Bill. Uh, something known as command presence, which is simply exactly the cop on, a, on the block, m merely standing there can have a deterrent effect, even if an officer is not further uh, using his constitutional powers to intervene in suspicious behavior, merely being there can deter uh, more violent behavior, but I don't think that uh, they have the manpower to be able to have the type of flood the zone uh, 
activity that would be necessary. There's some research, right? I remember some of it from, gosh, from law school 100 years ago, but you'll be more up to date. Does it make a difference whether they were would be would be or could be standing on the corner as opposed to being in the car? Uh, well, you know, the car, this is a big debate. Cars got highly used in the 1960s and 1970s with the advent of radio cars and uh, and crime was going up so much that the police were sort of rushing from one robbery to another uh, and the metric that was then used for police efficiency was response times, you know, and we still hear that. You know, it takes the officers two minutes mm-hmm. to respond to a 911 call or seven minutes to respond mm-hmm. to a 911 call. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know if there's any research comparing what it's like to have an officer, officers driving in a patrol car versus being out of their car on the street. I think the previous uh, police chief in Chicago, Gary McCarthy, who came out of the NYPD, he was a very high-up commander within the New York Police Department, he did uh, just have officers positioned in their cars on corners. I think that can do do have an effect as well. You know, if you've got a two cops uh, parked in a patrol car across from a bodega that's a drug drug haven, right. there's probably right. not going to be as much drug activity there as there would be without that car. So I remember, maybe I'm wrong, I don't want to get down a rabbit trail here, but there was something about community policing and that it was good to have officer-friendly walking the beat and talking to people, good for community relations as well as law enforcement and prevention. Well, neighborhoods beg for that, and again, it's it's sort of a mystery to me why that's not possible. I, I go to housing projects in New York, and I talk with people that are in their 60s or 70s, and they all speak fondly of, of this time when they knew their officer, uh, assuming that this is not a recollection clouded by nostalgia, if that's yeah. true... <laughs> It's still a mystery to me. Why is that not possible now? Uh, you know, is the population so much greater that, uh, you you know, the officer is at a, a lower ratio per, per population unit? People do seem to want that um, and get them out of their cars. And it's I've not seen an answer as to why that doesn't happen and it, and it apparently uh, happened more in the past. Yeah, you'll, you'll allow a digression in the interests of culture. You're a great consumer of great culture. I'm a sometimes consumer of great culture, but a frequent consumer of low culture. So for some <laughs> reason, not or no reason, Mrs. Bennett and I were watching Pillow Talk last night with Rock Hudson and Doris Day. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's a, it's a trifle. Anyway, at the end, he goes to her apartment and picks her up and carries her out forcibly, which, you know, you wouldn't do anymore. And she's kicking, but, of course, she's just her, just her little feet are moving. And, they walk, and, you know, you remember the way girls used to kick in the old movies? Yes, just yes, like, Put me down, you cad, right. you know? And they walk down the street and rock, and rock is carrying her, you know, before we all knew that this was not what yeah. rock really wanted to do. Anyway... They pass by a policeman, and she says, Officer, arrest this man. He's kidnapping me. And Rock says, Hey, Mahoney, how are you? Right? 
They, they, just what you were talking about. They miss it. And Mahoney says, fine, Mr. Allen, fine. And then they go, and then, and then the movie ends, and they get married, I think. Anyway. Yeah, if only that was the main problem we had in these neighborhoods. But um, Okay, well, yeah. why, not, why not hire more police? Chicago could afford more police, can't it? Well, you know, Chicago has a massive, massive debt problems. Yes, you true, know, they're, they're, the whole economy is about to plummet because of the pension crisis. So, uh, okay. one okay. of the Maybe not. one of the mayoral contenders is certainly running on hiring more police. Um, of course, the Black Lives Matter movement is saying not only do we not want to hire more police, we want to disband the police entirely. Right. right. Also, in terms of resources, there's resource allocation. And in your article, uh, Heather, you mentioned the longest police consent decree ever written was just signed. Will this tell us what this was and whether this will be helpful or not? My guess is no. No, it's a disaster. Uh, and Gary McCarthy, the former police chief who's running for mayor, should be running against this, saying, I will tear this thing up. Uh, it was a process of the consent decree that was started under the Obama administration. They wrote a completely spurious uh, report on the Chicago Police Department that was uh, initiated after a video of a very, I think, questionable, if not outright bad, you know, unequivocally bad shooting surfaced of the shooting of uh, Laquan McDonald in the fall of 2014. Mm -hmm. Um, But this was not representative of the department. Nevertheless, the Obama Justice Department wrote a long report, typical of every product it had produced during its administration on policing that was used a completely specious methodology to determine that the Chicago Police Department was systemically biased. That methodology consists of evaluating police activity not against crime but against population ratios. So if it turns out that the police question and arrest blacks at a higher rate than their than their uh, proportion in the population according to this specious uh, population benchmark that the Obama administration used that shows police racism well that's a completely ridiculous yeah. uh, methodology because policing today is data driven it goes where people are being victimized, and that is in minority neighborhoods. In Chicago, you have to, like every other city, to understand policing, you have to look at crime. The reality in Chicago is whites and blacks are each just under a third of the city's population. Blacks commit 80% of all rob of all shootings and murders, whites commit about 1% of all shootings and murders. That fact of crime has enormous implications for policing. It means that when the cops are called to a shots-fired call, they are invariably being called to a black or Hispanic neighborhood, being given the description of a black or Hispanic shooter, and the victim will himself almost invariably be back or Hispanic. So the Obama Justice Department set in motion this process to slap a consent decree 
on the Chicago Police Department based on this phony methodology. They rushed to complete it uh, before their term ended, and they had like a week to go, and they tried and tried, but they couldn't get the final signature from the judge, so it was in abeyance. U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who's Trump's attorney general, uh, said, I'm not going forward with this consent decree. I, I don't think it's based on a valid analysis of the Chicago Department. Well, nevertheless, uh, the Illinois Attorney General said, oh, no, you don't. We're, we, I'm going to then sue the Chicago uh, Police Department. And one of these sweetheart deals, Rahm Emanuel said, okay, good, sue me. Uh, I will... I will agree to sign this consent decree with you. It's 232 pages, possibly the longest consent decree uh, ever on a police department. It's estimated to cost about $15 million in its first year alone. Most of that will go towards the care and feeding of a federal monitor, which is by now a cottage industry. These monitors jump from one consent decree to another. You ask about why not hire more police officers. Well, $15 million in one year, that's where the money could come from that will go instead to this thing. It has a very long section on retraining officers and rewriting the patrol guide to make sure that officers are using the proper uh, transgender pronouns, which are the Z and the they, uh, in accord with uh, how somebody views his own gender, uh, something that's completely irrelevant, obviously, come, come to on. trying come to on. save lives come on. in um, really? in the really? South and West Sides. Really? I mean, so you have... Really what? Uh, really? I mean, this is really... I mean, so you have someone who's shot, who's in a dress, but you think it's a man. you got to stop and pause and figure out what to call him, her, it? Yeah, Consult, consult the patrol guide, and, and if he says, no, you know, I'm a man, I, I look like a man, but I'm really a she, and I want to be called Z, uh, y- you, better, you better be right as an officer or you're going to be in violation of civil rights. So, so this consent decree is going to be a further, uh, and, and it is also the, the people giving input, the uh, Black Lives Matter Chicago and the ACLU were allowed to intervene in the suit and our advisors on the consent decree. The police union tried to intervene, and I don't believe it was granted standing to do so. Wow. Okay. I want to go to the first reason, but I want to go there by kind of an odd way. When talking about Chicago, I watched, before we watched Pillow Talk, maybe that's why I watched Pillow Talk, I was watching the news on both Fox and CNN yesterday, and it was endless, I don't know if you were tuned in at all, coverage of these, quote, two marches, close quote, in Washington. One was the march of Unite the Right, and the other was a counter march or counter demonstration, okay? Why this was news I don't, I'm still wondering, but the Unite the Right rally had something like 20 people. And from what I could see, pretty pretty ragtag, you know. Anyway, pretty ragtag bunch. The counter-rally, apparently a lot of Antifa people, had thousands. And I remember the picture on TV in Boston after Charlottesville when they had, like, I don't know, like 25 people who were white supremacists or linking hands in solidarity about some of that or just didn't want statues brought down or whatever. And then there were thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of protesters. 
Anyway, the reason I bring it up, the, the chant from the large crowd was, no borders, no walls, no USA at all. <laughs> no really? USA at all. What, is that? what does that mean? I, I mean, I guess that's the logical extension of some people's immigration policy, right? No USA. Right. But the uh, the overlay, uh, the narrative, on at least one of the one of the networks was race relations in America. Well, you can't draw a picture of race relations in America from a march of twenty people uh, for you know a Unite the Right rally and thousands um, of counter demonstrators. I, 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 I do want to. I mean, I don't want to lose side of Chicago here. I think I'm connecting something. People, a lot of people would say about Chicago, well, you got to look at the larger question of race in America. But the larger question of race in America is not what was going on in Washington yesterday, because I think most Americans have overcome, you know, racial bias, I think, by, by a long shot. It's uh, the problems you're talking about in the city of Chicago and this. I, I, this Antifa crowd. I mean, the United the Right. I mean, what, what? Twenty people. I mean, this is not going to bring down the republic. This is not a threat to our to our well being. But the conjuring up of some major racial divide as an explainer of what's happening in Chicago. And you hear that, don't you? I mean, when people get into the narratives of Chicago, they don't say usually what you do. They say, "Well, it's it's the great racial divide." But you know. Is there this great racial divide? Well, the effort of the university culture is certainly to create one. Sure. Uh, sure. You know, it, it, from the moment a student steps on campus, he is indoctrinated with the belief that there is continuing white supremacy, white privilege, heterotoxic masculinity, uh, and that if he's not a heterosexual white male, uh, he or she yeah. should think of himself as an oppressed victim. Uh, and that specious identity politics and narcissistic victimology is very quickly seeping out into the so-called real world, uh, into corporate HR departments, into the media. Uh, and so I agree with you. I think your average American is a person of goodwill who does not give a damn about race. Your average student is a person of goodwill who doesn't give a damn about race. Students come on college campuses ready to get along with everybody. They just want to make friends, do as little studying as possible, <laughs> net their degree, you know, yeah, yeah. And, and, net, and, and network and get a job. Uh, and yet, they're told they're they're pushed into this this ideology of resentment and hatred hatred for for whites hatred for the greatest works of western civilization um, and the left is and the media left is so committed to this narrative that they have to pump up things like unite the right which are minute in number yeah. compared to Antifa yeah. or to just your average yeah. left-wing hater. Uh, now, obviously, the fact that a white protester, white supremacist, killed somebody last year is a game-changer. Uh, nobody from Antifa has killed somebody, uh, and that is absolutely deplorable and, uh, you know, puts it in a... In a category that is different than anything that the Antifa thugs have done. Nevertheless, as far as sheer numbers, uh, the, these 
white supremacist protesters are nothing. They are absolutely trivial. Yeah, okay. Um, but but yeah. the, the media has to create this narrative that this is something significant in order to keep going the idea that racism is the problem. And as for Chicago, you're absolutely right. I, I heard an amazing interview on NPR after the, the two weekends ago violence um, with a, a female NPR reporter and a black pastor. Rahm Emanuel, the mayor of Chicago, had made a very brief and tepid invocation of the fact that there was a moral problem when you yeah. have people shooting people at on front porches and at a funeral wake uh, that there's there's a problem there that the community has to take responsibility for this pastor and and so the NPR reporter said well is there anything to this the pastor rejected it the idea completely completely that there was anything that the individuals themselves should be held responsible for or the community itself instead it was entirely a problem of the so-called white majority's disinvestment in black communities and the failure of Emmanuel to spend enough on social services well this is ridiculous I, I've been tracing Chicago's social spending they have had one you know, massive youth services plan after another. And as far as disinvestment, you are not going to get significant business investment in a community when crime is high. The the left has the causality reversed. You do not... Business does not precede crime drops. Crime drops precede business, as we learned in New York City when proactive, data-driven, accountable policing brought crime down 70% in Harlem and and Brooklyn, and business followed. Thank you for indulging me. You get right to where I wanted to go, because part of, somebody said to me, the major problem in life and life in the academy is sometimes the restatement of the obvious, you know, is the first responsibility of people. George Orwell said that. And what a lot of people in the academy want to do is, when you got something that's obvious looking right at you, is to say, "No, no, no! Look over there." Mm-hmm. So you, so you end this that's article. Right. You end this article by saying, "But policing is only a second best solution to the anarchy in inner city communities. The best solution is a culture of marriage that expects boys to take responsibility for the children they conceive, as long as more than three-quarters of Chicago's inner-city children are raised without their father's black-on-black violence will continue. Well, at Michael Eric Dyson, hearing that, or Tahisi Coates, or a lot of these other mm-hmm. folks, will say nonsense, and then they will give you this blizzard of words right? Um, to say, don't look there, look over here. Uh-huh. That's absolutely right. Okay. If Freud's right, the first thing about our problem is to understand what it is, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you misconceive the nature of the problem, you're never going to solve it. Now, That's you- absolutely right. That's absolutely right. I mean, we are going to be having this exact same conversation in 10 years. Yeah. Making any headway? Am I making... Yeah, I, I mean, is this any- point, is your point of view making any headway? Daniel Patrick Moynihan's point of view, my point of view, just to put myself in great company. But I mean, you know, there are a lot of people who believe, a lot of people who just know this. They know it. But, I know. but of course, many people are intimidated into saying it. 
I I don't, frankly, I mean, I know one is supposed to be optimistic, you know, to keep people uh, energized for the fight. Um, I'm frankly a pessimist by nature, so one has to factor that into account. But I don't see a hell of a lot of headway here. Um, You know, I mean, there's people providing the data on the social catastrophe that is family breakdown, and it still remains absolutely remote from most public discourse. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it remains the case that virtually every article about poverty that shows up in the mainstream media is absolutely silent about the fact that the people who are being discussed are all single mothers. Um, and instead, it's viewed as a problem of inadequate gov- uh, welfare uh, transfers. Yep. We're not getting your pronouns right. But, you right. know, if you get back to the culture and the raising of boys and fathers to be there, and there is, I won't say it takes a village, but it does help for the schools to help, too. And, and you know, Shakespeare says, don't trouble the poor with begging. Because it occurred to me, I just made a note while you were talking about you know, the arrests. Is it, did I get this right? Something like a third of Chicago is black, yet 80% of the shootings and murders are by black individuals of other black individuals. Yeah. A third of Chicago is white, and that's one. A third of Chicago, about 32% are black, 32% are white. Blacks commit 80% of murders and shootings. Whites commit 1% of murders and shootings. Okay, and this so, is... And, and, and the kissing. A 50, but black, a black Chicagoan is 50 times more yeah. likely to be engaged, to be committing a drive-by shooting than a white Chicagoan. Right, right, right. But you can't arrest on that basis. Well, no. People are, are basing their they're making a they arrest based on probable cause. You can only arrest somebody if you have probable cause that that individual committed a particular crime. And they're also not making deployments. Simple, they're not making deployments on the basis of race. They're making the deployments on the basis of victimization. Where are people being yeah. shot? Where are people being robbed? Where are people being burgled? And that is overwhelmingly in minority neighborhoods. Now, what you are seeing in Chicago on the, on the Magnificent Mile and Michigan Avenue downtown, you're having youth mobs that are running amok and are assaulting passersby right. and right. running over the tops of cars and running across intersections and, and uh, yeah. beating people up. But the message to police is don't arrest too many black people. Right. This right. impact. Be- right. That is the that is the analysis that is now going to be written in stone with the consent decree. That is the analysis that the Obama Justice Department used, which is okay. you compare policing activity to population ratios rather right. than to crime. But the cousin of this, in case you want to get ahead of the curve and try to teach people some respect for themselves, other people, and law and order in the schools is the same regulations and disparate impact in terms of disciplinary action, expulsion, etc. Right. You, you know about those regulations? Uh, oh, sure. I mean, that's the exact same, same thing, thing in the same schools, thing. Right. is that right. 
the presumption is is that any kind of disparity, I mean, blacks are suspended from schools at three times the rate of whites. And so the academic left, Daniel Lozen at, at uh, Harvard, will say that is prima facie evidence of teacher bias uh, because the presumption is there can be no behavioral differences between blacks and whites. That's ludicrous. It's ludicrous, given what we know about family breakdown, given what we yep. know about crime. Black teenagers, males between the ages of 14 and 17, commit homicide at 10 times the rate of white and Hispanic male teens between the ages of 14 and 17 combined. 10 times. The idea that that crime disparity does not grow out of the exact same lack of socialization and impulse control that would show up in the classroom, resulting in massive insubordination of kids beating up their teacher, disrupting class, engaging in those types of defiant, insubordinate behaviors that will result when principals and teachers have exhausted all alternatives in somebody getting suspended is ridiculous. Of course, it's, it's the part of the same problem. And yet the disparate impact analysis demands that you cannot look at behavior. You also um, may not demand, but it also intentionally or unintentionally urges you to not regard the victim because the victims are the same tend to be of the same background ethnicity race as the perpetrators right it's all those black victims we don't think yes i mean the the media thinks of itself as the social justice warrior and the bulwark against the racism of the deplorables they are the most racist they are the official racist institution in our culture the one remaining racist institution there can be you know there, there is a, a Newton school shooting every couple months in the black community. There are black kids being mowed down in these drive-by shootings on a regular basis. The media doesn't pay attention. Let there be two dozen white kids killed in a, in a school or a dozen, and this becomes an international sensation. Yeah. Yeah, right. The media puts a very different price on black heads than on white heads. And it's almost like the five-eighths rule. It takes many, many magnitudes more black bodies to get media attention than white bodies. You know, there was that shooting in Toronto uh, earlier this summer where two people were, were killed by a guy that was shooting. This became an international story. Two white people shot. Right. Again, there are there are dozens of black people shot every weekend. It's not just Chicago. It's Baltimore. It's Detroit. It gets no media attention. Right. Where's the compassion? The black community there. Yeah. Right. Heather MacDonald, thank you. Thank you very much, as always. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Good talking to you. That was Heather, Heather MacDonald. Heather, the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a contributing editor of City Journal, the author of The War on Cops. The next time we have her on our show, we'll talk about her new book, The Diversity Delusion. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. 
So let's change direction. Let's dive deep into the Janus decision, the Supreme Court's important decision about public sector unions and workers. Let's do it with Terry Pell, president at the Center of Individual Rights. Terry Pell. Hey, Bill. How are you? Good, good. Thanks so much for joining us. Sure. All right. I want to talk to you about the Supreme Court decision. But first, I want a quick tour of Sweden, if you'd share with our listeners. You went back to the old, uh, the old, the old home, huh? The old uh, homestead. What? Tell us a little bit. Yeah. No. Well, my uh, my grandfather uh, came over from Sweden in 1923, and um, you didn't do then, one of these DNA tests to figure this out, did you? No. No. Good, no. Good, okay. No. We always knew this, and my right. father. Then he brought my father over five years after that, uh, right as the depression was beginning. So they had a tough few years. Um, but anyway, over the where years, did they live in uh, Chicago and then Milwaukee, mm-hmm. and um, so basically, my father during through all his high school years, they, you know, I wouldn't say we're living hand to mouth, but it was pretty close to it before you know things kind of evened out at the end of the depression, and we, you know, we've had relatives from Sweden visit us from time to time, and I'd always wondered. Uh, you know, we've stayed in touch, and but I always wanted to visit the country and never have really had the chance until this summer. And I took um, took my wife and kids over because I wanted my children to see where, you know, their great-grandfather came from. Your three grown-up boys, really. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're all in, the, you know, in their 20s, mid to late 20s. So uh, we had just a terrific time. I mean, it's uh, it was a very eye-opening trip. We, we, uh, what surprised we, you? What surprised you? Well, you know, it's uh, Sweden is the impression that you get of Sweden in this country is that it's a socialist utopia, and it is a very politically very liberal country. There's no doubt about it, but uh, it's very complicated. I mean, there are a lot of people that disagree with uh, you know what's going on in Sweden, and there are countercurrents. Um, you know, the ruling kind of majority party is about to, or is likely to lose its majority uh, this fall in an election as the result of a, uh, you know, a nationalist type party that emphasizes immigration and other themes that, uh, you know, yeah. are familiar to us in this country. What about the immigration stuff there? Did, did, what, did, did people talk about it with you? Well, we were in a part, a rural part of the country that was pretty insulated from that. Most All of right, that's so that the, most of it's what Stockholm, uh, the southwest part of the country, not okay. even Stockholm so okay. much. But yes, it's basically the big cities, and it is has been destabilizing. I mean, Sweden is a very you know has a very uniform culture, homogeneous uh, place, yeah. homogeneous exactly, and so the massive amount of immigration has destabilized things in some parts, and it's created a lot of you know, social tension. So are they so rethinking their policy? I believe so. Um, and I believe this party that's about to, you know, gain seats in the parliament in this fall's election is going to force further change. Interesting. So, so things are in motion. And, um, uh, you know, we, we met, you know, we bit, met business entrepreneurs who are totally pro-Trump and think he's hmm. doing a great thing. They all follow Trump quite closely. Yeah. They have different views about him, but he is a big piece of the news in Sweden. I was saying about uh, another podcast with somebody else about name recognition. I think Trump is right up there in the world now with uh, Muhammad Ali, Michael Jordan, and Nike. I think Co- that's right. Coca-Cola, Coca- Trump, you know, <laughs> just, you yeah. know, right? 
No, it's true. I mean, we were on our way there. We had a layover in the Frankfurt Airport, and they, on the you know TV screen in the waiting area, they were playing uh, this film loop of Trump walking across the White House lawn holding the hand of uh, you know a little girl who I think is a relative of his, and this just played constantly, and it made you realize that. Trump is as big a fixture in, you know, outside the United States as he is in yeah, the United States. Yeah, you know, it's larger, larger than life. I, yeah. I, I, saw him, I saw him on Sunday. I had breakfast with him. Oh, great. Yeah, that's all I'm telling you. That's all I'm telling you. That's all I'm telling the audience. That's all I'm telling Claude. <laughs> anyway, that was, that was just a meeting with a couple other people, some people. I'm trying to get something in front of the president, and I offered to help, so... Anyway, uh, it was very, very interesting. No, he's, yeah, he is larger in life. He's larger in life in person, too. So. All yeah. right. Um, good. All right. Give us a good Swedish name of relatives so we have some real Swedish name in our minds here as we conclude this. Do you have an Uncle Sven or something? <laughs> uh, well, the, the people we stayed with were named Ula and Pricken. There you go. I love it. Good. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> they were sure. And they served you moose, right? Yes, no, uh, uh, Prickin is a big hunter, and he told us that he's killed 78 moose over his uh, lifetime of hunting. And he take, take, he kills, gets two or three every year, and that's what they live off of. So that's what we lived off of. We had, you know, tenderloin of moose, moose tenderloin one night. We had moose stew another night. We had um, spaghetti with moose sauce on it, and it was it was just terrific. It was, right. it was really like high-quality beef every night. It was really, really, really good. Yeah, they're big. Moose are big too, right? They're so huge. If you kill one, it'll go for a while. That's exactly right. Fed the Pell boys, huh? Right. Okay. <laughs> Terry, uh, the Janus decision. We've been talking about. It. I've been working on this. I've been writing about it. You've been helped, very helpful to me in, in guiding me, and then offering some thoughtful corrections to some of the things I, I, I said and wrote. And I'm trying to refine it and, and get this down squarely. But you are expert. Um, first of all. Tell us in a sentence or two, because I want to go backwards, um, what, the, what the Supreme Court held in, in the Janus decision. Well, the Supreme Court did away with agency fees, which uh, about 22 states had this bizarre requirement that after you quit the union, you still had to pay roughly 70% of union dues to the union just for the privilege of being represented by the union. And the Supreme Court said this violates people's you know, First Amendment rights to decide for themselves what organizations to support. Just like the you know, government can't come in and order you to make contributions to the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, they can't order you to pay union dues. So they struck down the agency fee laws that uh, currently exist in 22 states. Uh, and that's a big deal. It's a big deal because it means that, uh, you know, roughly 10% of the uh, employees in these states who have quit the union no longer have to pay, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in dues or hundreds of thousands of dollars, actually, if you add it all up. It's also a big deal because now when you quit the union, you go from paying 100% of your dues to paying 0% of your dues. So there's a real monetary incentive now for people to think about whether they want to be in the union and whether the union really represents their interests. So we could see an additional 10, 20, maybe 30 percent of union members, uh, you know, not right away, but over the next couple of years deciding to leave. And that will, I think, make the unions suddenly more accountable to their membership because they're going to be dependent on uh, keeping their members and they're going to have to fight for those members with things that those members 
you know, want and desire. So that's right, good I want, news. I want it good. Okay, I want to dig deeper into this um, and, and and headline it in a second. But I want to go backwards because uh, what role did you and your organization, Center for Individual Rights, have in the Janus decision or its pre- predecessor? Well, we brought a big case in uh, uh, right before uh, in the the two terms ago. It was called Friedrichs versus California Teachers right. Association. And it was the first case to focus solely on the First Amendment rights of employees to decide for themselves how to spend their money. And that uh, zoomed through the lower courts. It got to the Supreme Court. It, we had a terrific oral argument. It looked like we had five votes. It looked like we were going to win. And then Justice Scalia sadly passed away a month after the oral argument. So fortunately, other organizations picked up the ball and basically brought the same kind of case. The key here was instead of attacking the unions, our case and the Janus case focused on the free speech rights of individual teachers to decide for themselves whether they like the union or not. And the Supreme Court was very receptive to that kind of free speech approach that really put this decision in the hands of individual teachers and other public employees. Instead of the courts deciding this or the state legislature deciding this, uh, the court got to rule that individual public employees get to decide this for themselves. So that was the big breakthrough. Once Friedrichs showed how this worked, then other organizations uh, picked up the ball, and Janus is the case that got to the Supreme Court and the and the one that, uh, you know, won, uh, that produced the victory this, this term. Okay. Let's explore this. And again, uh, uh, layman audience here, including me, because I got part of this wrong in my original thought, or I didn't get part of it wrong. I was just pushing a little... A little too much, but uh, let, let's review this and then get into it. Agency fees. Agency fees are what a lot of people would call dues, right? That's exactly right. Okay, they're right. they're essentially compelled dues. They're okay. what this. Yeah. All right. <laughs> to repeat what you said, because I wrote it down, the, what the court ruled is that after you quit a union, in the past you you have still had to pay agency fees. Now you don't. That's right. Okay. What about people who? Don't quit the union. Well, that's where that's where that's where it's murky, and that's where the fight's going to be going forward. Uh, you know, the the Supreme Court said that individuals have a free speech right to decide for themselves whether to join the union. Well, the people who are currently in the union have decided to be in the union, and they've all signed agreements to support the union. So, um, on the face of it, it looks like uh, all the existing members are, you know, meet the requirements of Janus. It was a free decision on their part, and they're paying dues, and that's kind of the end of the story. Where it gets tricky is that the union has made the, made it very difficult in some cases for the existing members to leave the union, and they've put attached so many conditions to the decision to leave that it amounts to an unconstitutional burden on the free speech rights of these people to decide for themselves that they want to leave the union. Okay. So that's where the legal fight going forward is going to be. Is if, it, if it's really true that people have a First Amendment right to decide this for themselves, then it can't be the case that the union makes people jump through so many hoops to leave the union that they effectively have to stay in the union. That would seem to violate the free speech rights of employees. So that's where things are going to have to be fought out, probably in the courts and also in the state legislatures. Right. You anticipated my, uh, my next question, which was, okay, easy easy part of the decision. Once you quit the union, you don't have to pay agency dues. 
what about people quitting the union then, and, and so they don't have to pay agency dues? Well, the unions make it very hard to quit the union, right? That's, right. That's the point. Um, so they'll, that's where a lot of the fighting will be. What, what are the rules that will govern how hard can the union make it to quit the union? What guidance did the court give there? Well, the uh, in a couple of sentences, um, Justice Alito, in his opinion, said uh, the union cannot collect dues unless there is good evidence that an individual has freely decided to, you know, join the union and authorize those dues. So the question is, what is what it would you know what what kind of a, a decision is a free decision here? Um, Right now, in some states, the union says, okay, once you join, you can never quit unless you let us know during a two-week period once a year uh, in the fall when teachers, among other public employees, are most busy. So it's like in some states have made this like a magazine subscription where, you know, once you're in, you can never get out unless you uh, comply with the deadline. And if you happen to miss the deadline, you're stuck in the union for another year. And so that's going to be challenged. It can't be the case that you keep you can keep kind of tricking people to stay in the union uh, by making the rules so difficult to get out of the union. Um, that that's the kind of issue that we're talking about. Is the union essentially saying in those states, um, once you join the union, we're going to operate on the presumption that you're stay, staying in the union? Basically, that's right. Okay. Okay. Um, what about new people going into the teaching profession? Well, this is another area where, in a, you know, a handful of states, the unions have gone to very union-friendly state legislatures and gotten laws passed that uh, give the union uh, a very one-sided advantage in uh, talking to new employees about joining the union. Um, you know, in some states, the, in California, for example, the union gets a free session uh, with every new employee, uh, nobody else is present. The union can have these meetings off the work site. In other words, they can go to an individual's home uh, and try to persuade them to to join the union. So uh, we don't know exactly how this is going to work, but you can certainly see that there's going to be a lot of room for arm twisting here. Um, and probably, you know, even more problematic along with this is uh, in California and other states they've gotten laws passed that forbid the schools from disclosing uh, the names or contact information uh, to, of new employees to any outside group that might want to uh, educate new employees about their right to not be in the union. So essentially a new employee, uh, the, you know, the, the union gets first and, and the only crack at trying to persuade a new employee to join the union. The new employee is going to find it very difficult to hear any other side of the story because nobody can get the information to contact these employees about the other side of the story. So those kind of one-sided laws that completely favor the union uh, are going to be challenged. Okay. Uh, and there, you know, there's there's a lot of room here for um, state legislatures to correct this problem with legislation that makes clear that new employees have a right to hear both sides, and uh, if they decide to join the union, they have the right to leave the union whenever they decide they want to leave the union. They shouldn't have to wait a whole year to leave the union. What will be the immediate impact, I mean, in, within a year? Uh, what percentage of either revenues or members will will unions go down 
what will the decline in union membership be, or what will the decline in revenues be, or both, if you have a guess? Well, right off the top, the agency fee payers are gone, and those in some states are amount to about 10% of the covered employees. Okay. So that's right off the top. Then beyond that, uh, the estimates range between 10% and 30%, 10% and 30% drop in membership. Whether it's 10% or whether it's 30% is going to depend a lot on what the unions do. If the unions, you know, now some that's unions... That's on top of the 10%. That's right, exactly. Okay, okay. All right, so category one is the people who don't have to pay, simply don't have to pay, and they won't pay. Right. Then, then uh, are they still represented by the union, their interests? Yes, the union okay. asked for and got state legislation that makes them the sole collective bargaining okay. agent for all employees. So they're obligated to represent everybody's interests, not just well, the interests of their own members. Whether people are paying or not. Then the other 10 to 30% are the people who are, what, debating whether to leave or? Right. Okay. They're in the union now. And they may decide to leave the union. And, you know, we don't know how many of them are going to leave. And it's going to depend on, you know, many factors, including what the union does to make itself more popular with its members. Okay. What about then, do you give a percentage to new members? I don't know what the new membership is each year. Is it 2% or 5% of the total? I'm not sure. Probably, I mean, it varies from state to state. I don't really know. So this could be, I mean, within a fairly short period of time, depending on interpretation, in three, four years, this could be 30, 40% of union membership and union revenues. It could be. Um, But we do have, I mean, we do have some... You know, states to draw on here. So, as you know, a number of states passed their own right to work laws. And um, in some of those states, obviously, there is a big drop in membership. But in other of those states, union membership was stable. And overall, in the right to work states, union membership has grown slightly over the last decade. And so you might ask yourself why this is. And the answer is the unions in those states have taken seriously the need to persuade people to join the union. And it turns out the union can be persuasive. The union offers things that people want, and when it makes the case for those things and responds to what its potential members want, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it can be successful. But this, this varies quite a bit from union to union, and it varies quite a bit depending upon the leadership of the union. If the leadership you know, uh, uh, takes a defiant stance and continues to operate as if it's entitled to, you know, 100% membership of every employee, uh, they're likely to get hit hard. On the other hand, if the union views this as a, you know, an an opportunity to reach out and persuade new teachers to join, they they do okay. So, and we don't know what it's going to be. I mean, this is one of the big uh, you know, you know, conundrums here. We're just going to have to see how this plays out, and it depends on a lot of. There are a lot of moving parts here, and so we just don't know in advance what what's going to happen. But this is a big decision. It's a big shock to the unions, right? It's a huge shock. It it changes the way they do business. You know, in the 22 states where they were getting, you know, millions of dollars each year, courtesy of state laws that just guaranteed them this revenue, no matter what they did, uh, they tended to become, you know, unaccountable to their members. They adopted policies and strategies and political platforms that alienated, you know, 30, say 10, 20, 30 percent of their members, and then those members just had to go along with it. Well, now those members can walk away if they don't like it. So the union leadership is 
has a real incentive now to listen to what uh, what its what its members want and what they're interested in. Democrats um, will pay a lot of attention to this, right? I mean, it's a big part of the power base, the Democrat Party. Yes, I mean, I think at a high level, the unions are going to be you know screaming about the decision. But at the you know state level, where you know the actual work gets done, they're going to try to figure out how to you know work with us and make the best of it and make it end up being a plus for them. And we're just going to have to see how that plays out. But I guess Republicans or conservatives or people who are not so big on the unions can also work in the states to find ways to get to the members, to get to new members, to explain to people why they you know don't necessarily want to join. Right? They'll be they'll be mounting up activities as well. That's exactly right, and that is, a, a, I think, a key point here. Uh, you know, conservatives have assumed that if we, you know, essentially convert the whole country to a right-to-work country where everybody can make a free choice, that suddenly unions will go out of existence, and that's just not true. This decision is not self-executing. This decision puts okay. the decision, you know, the Supreme Court has put the decision of whether unions are good or bad in the hands of individual teachers. So it's very important for people who think the union is a bad idea to get out there and be making that argument, uh, because otherwise nothing much is going to happen. Very good. Thank you very much. Great primer. We may call you back. Uh, as uh, I'm, I may get involved in this in some of the states. We may seek your guidance and further illumination. And congratulations, because you guys uh, at Center for Individual Rights really plowed the way here. So congratulations. Well, thanks a lot. Tip, tip of the hat to you. What do, well, I thank say? You. what do I say in Swedish? Say tip of the hat. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, My okay. Swedish isn't that good. Okay, happy moose to you. Okay, yeah, okay. Good. All right. Thanks, All right, Terry. Thanks a lot, Bill. That was Terry Pell, president for the Center of Individual Rights. And that's just about it for this episode. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett, and you can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends, and we will catch up next week. Thank you for listening. Send us your emails. Please, please, please. Please.